Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast with Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Pastor Bob conducts personal interviews with Christian influencers from around the globe, helping Christian authors, recording artists, CEOs, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, and yes, pastors and ministry leaders to get the word out about what they are doing to impact the world with the gospel. Our podcast has been rated in the top one half percent of all podcasts in the world by ListenNotes.com, so you know your message will be heard. Now, here is your host with today's interview, Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast. Today, we're so blessed that you're joining us. We have as our guest today, back on the program today, Scott Wright, or T.S. Wright is his pen name for his books, and, and he's the author and presenter of the God-Centered Concepts series. And, and, you know, folks, if if you haven't been listening to our prior episodes, you need to go back and, and go to the archives, type in T.S. Wright, and listen to those episodes, because we, man, it's been a blessed time, as he's been sharing information about the seven church ages, the end days, the book of Revelation. And folks, last time we talked about the end of the first church age and, and then the second uh, church age, and today we're going into the third church age. Praise God. And the information that Scott has accumulated in his studies on this, I mean, there's no other way to put it other than saying it is a huge blessing and giving you wisdom and understanding on the end times, and it's going to culminate when we get to the last part, which is where we are at right now on the timeline. Amen. But in order to grasp that full understanding, you have to understand what the Lord has been doing all these other years since he went to heaven. And to get there, we first got to find out all the different ages. There's just no other thing to do except say, help me welcome to the program, Scott Wright. Scott, praise God for coming back on the program today, man. And I am so excited to hear the next step. Take it from there. Well, Bob, it's just great to be here, and thank you for having me on the show again. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. So obviously, we're going to be diving into the third age of the church, uh, Church of Pergamum. That's going to be Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. If you want to read that in your Bible, that's that would be the verses to read in chapter and verse. But I think to really understand from a historical standpoint, this age of the church, we have to dial back to the very end of the second age of the church. And I want to give a couple of quick review points that I think are important um, to help us advance into this third age. So one of the things to understand is that when we go back and look at the first age of the church, it was really about the process of removing the Jewish influence that, and where they were trying to stop Christianity. The second age of the church is now about removing the Roman influence, trying to stop Christianity. And in both cases, what's interesting is through these persecutions, it actually helped spread the church because people would flee and go to other areas yeah. and take yeah. the faith with them. So in a sense, it helps spread it outside both Israel and then eventually outside of Rome. So you had the Roman Empire where Christianity was spreading in pockets, but also people would flee outside of the Roman Empire, and as well, they would spread Christianity. So 
the church is spreading like crazy during this time. And, and when we see times, not just in these two ages of churches, but when we see times of intense persecution of Christianity, we also see the spreading of it. Yeah. And yeah. people really grasping the faith in a much more, I would say a solid way versus kind of that comfortable, kick your feet up, um, kind of take it for granted type of way, I guess a little bit too comfortable, but uh, and let's stop right there for a second, because sure. when the unbelievers in these new areas are witnessing these self-professed Christians being persecuted for sharing the gospel, continuing to live their life serving the Lord, refusing to deny, refusing to stop preaching. What are they saying? There's something to this. I want what they got, you know? And so we call that revival, <laughs> you know? And, hey. and, you know, the revival is for the church folks, but at the end, it, it is taking place then because, you know, here, you know, Sam and Sally and their three kids or whatever have fled this area and they're in this area now where nobody knows who they are and all this. And they're like, you know, is this really worth it? You know, is this, am I doing the right thing? And, you know, then they're faced with a situation and say, no, I'm not doing that because I don't do that. You know, And then they start answering, well, what do you mean you don't do that? Why don't you do this? Well, because of Jesus and they share the gospel and all of a sudden they see, wow, you know, yeah, we're bringing the gospel here. And, you know, people are coming to us now and you know, they're holding their little secret church meetings, you know, in house meeting, house church meetings. And, and so that shows them that the Lord's using them to reach that people group, you know? And so that sparks that revival that, that just keeps the fire spreading. And yeah, I mean, persecution brings revival. Put it like that. It definitely does. And we see that through both the first and the second ages of the church. Um, and that spread during that time um, will, will take hold in the Roman Empire itself. So what eventually will happen is, is of course, you guys can read the story of, you know, the, the battle and Constantine sees the vision and they advance forward and they fight the battle and win. And, and then we have afterwards the Edict of Milan. So I've, I've read this from some scholars that that was the start of the third age of the church. And as I, as I looked at how it was all organized from start to finish and praying about it, really what the edict of Milan is, it's, it's kind of that spark that starts the transition, but the edict of Milan actually is part of the second age of the church. It's the end of the second age of the church. And what is really the start of the third age of the church is Constantine being baptized because that is that moment when the person who has the most power on earth, other than God himself, takes Christianity and says, I am a part of this. That's when it happens. Because even after the Edict of Milan, there was still some persecution going on. There was still lots of turmoil. It just was starting to die off. And it won't be quite as intense as it was, obviously. And it's more, it's a little more subtle, some of this, because there's still a lot of feuding going on. And there's a lot of feuding going on in the church. 
which is also another significant characteristic of the second age of the church is that they were, they were in theological turmoil. They didn't, they had not totally embraced what the sacred writings were going to be, which we will eventually call the new Testament. They had not totally embraced theology. There were so many schisms during these periods of time. I mean, I can't read them all off. We, we could spend three days doing one podcast. Hey, we could go 72 straight hours and not cover them, cover all of what happened. That's how many there was going on. So if you want to read that, research it yourself. I've researched some of it. It finally got to the point where, I mean, and I've read some of that back when I was younger, a lot of it, but you, you, there's no way to, to keep all that in your brain. <laughs> remember, <laughs> but just know, and for our intents and purposes is that there was a lot of this going on. And some of this still went on in the third age of the church. But what happens is when we transition and Constantine starts calling to order councils and, and they're starting to become that acceptability of Christianity and it's coming in the empire. Now we start seeing some settling here. Constantine gets baptized. He dies. That is the trigger point that kicks us into the third age of the church. And from that point forward, then what happens is, is the church really starts to hone in on its theology. And it really starts to hone in on what are these sacred writings. And you'll see all these councils. And there were some councils before that, that this isn't the first time that's happened. But through these councils, through all the, really the transaction and between all of these guys and all the different writings. And I mean, it's, and it, it there's a plethora of this going on in the empire at the time, they're trying to figure all this out and try to, to really almost institutionalize the church, which is eventually what they'll do. So what happens is, is we have also a group of guys that start in the second age of the church with who a lot of people would know as St. Anthony. And he becomes kind of the start of this desert fathers movement. He lives for 105 years. Athanasius will write about him. And so we'll get, there's a lot of our theology that comes from these guys to not, to not study them is really a mistake because even though they lit, that was the start of the monastic lifestyle, which, you know, living in the monasteries and seclusion and more poverty and not, uh, you know, not living for the world, but simply living for Jesus and living in style the way Jesus did. Okay. This is the start of that as well. Well, let me ask you right here. Yes. What were they studying if the, we didn't have any <laughs> of the written word? Well, that's interesting. They had these writings. They were studying all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they would they would look at it. And what's funny is, is through this period of time in the 100s and the 200s and even into the early 300s, they were starting to see that the 27 writings that we'll eventually adopt as the New Testament that will be adopted in 397 and then a little bit in the early 400s, this will all come together. And Athanasius, of course, in 367 with his festal letter, they'll start settling in on those 27. But they also still put a lot of value in the other ones that weren't considered sacred writings, which what they mean by that is, is what would be read during a church session. Okay, so when they would go to a worship session, they would not read the other things. But outside of that, they would. 
and they still put a lot of value in them. You know, it's just like in Israel, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, okay, that is considered the highest sacred writing in Jewish, in the Jewish faith. All the other writings, even what's included in the Old Testament, are not quite as sacred as those. Those are those are all kind of the surrounding things, and then the core is the Torah. Yeah. That's the way to look at it from a Jewish perspective. Truly, it is. You know, we look at the Old Testament as all the same. Jews don't. The t- five books of the Torah, that is the key concept. That is their core. Mm-hmm. And really, the rest of the Old Testament is centered around those five books. Much of our faith is. Yep. It really is. I mean, True. you know, and some of that and all that kind of stuff will start being established during this third age of the church. It had been discussed and there were people who had settled in on this, but it, but that philosophy was not widespread yet. There were still all these pockets doing all their different things. And eventually we get a, a little bit more of a unified system as when we get into the third age of the church. And that'll be a significant characteristic, and that will help lead to the institution of the church, which will really take hold in 538. So 537, 538, when the Byzantines take back Rome after Rome had fallen, the Roman Empire had fallen, now the Byzantines retake Rome. When they take it, that's really the start of the authority of the Holy Roman Church. And so that will help that'll kind of be that last straw that'll completely solidify it as an institution. But before this, this third age of the church is really them settling in on the, the development. So if you're thinking of it in terms of a corporation, corporations usually start with a thought and an idea. That's kind of the first stage of the church. And then there's all the scattered stuff and it's kind of crazy. That's kind of the second age of the church. And then the third age of the church is now we're going to organize our research and our ideas and we're going to start structuring it. And then the fourth age of the church is now we're going to make it go. Now that corporation is taking off and going mainstream. And so that's kind of the way to think of the first four ages of the church. Truly it is. And so, and that's kind of what happens. But in this third age, this is kind of where everything starts to get structured. You know, those things had kind of been there, but not formally. And there was, again, there was too many schisms. There was too many different ideas. And all of that starts to think of it as a funneling process. It all starts to get funneled in. Athanasius will be a very prominent figure during this time. This guy is going to be exiled a lot. (laughs) I mean, he's going to be Archbishop of Alexandria. Okay. From like 328 to 373 is when I think he dies. If I remember correctly. Yes, he, that's correct. So, and he dies in 373. Well, during this time, he's exiled like 16 of these years off and on. I mean, it's 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 a roller coaster. But what he would do a lot of times, not every time, but he would retreat to the Desert Fathers. Mm-hmm. And he would fast and pray with these guys. And I sometimes wonder if a lot of what his theology is that he shares with people in his writings and all this stuff that really takes hold in Christianity later on, and becomes a lot of our theological basis. You can go back and read his writings. I think it comes from these desert fathers, him spending that time with them in that seclusion. So in many ways, his exile time was probably more valuable to us than his time actually sitting in the seat of archbishop. Hey Amen. You talk about, you know, that time of getting away. We do the same thing today. We talk about our alone time with God. 
Absolutely. I know for me personally, when I'm struggling with something that, you know, how do we do this? How is this going to work? What should I do next? It's that alone time when the revelation comes, you know, because now you've quieted down, you've eliminated the distractions and now the Holy Spirit can speak and you can listen, you know? And, you know, so as he's exiled, he's probably like, good, I'm going on, what do they call it? Uh, uh, well, the sabbatical. Sabbatical, yeah, I'm going on a sabbatical. See you in a couple <laughs> of years, you know? And, and when he comes back, he's more on fire than he was when he left. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I can imagine these desert fathers are building into him because they're praying and fasting with him. You know they are. That's what they do. These guys are, you know, they see it. I'll tell you what, go back and read the book, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. I listened to it on Audible. I've listened to a lot of these books that were rejected by the in the Bible. You can learn a lot. You can also, I can also see why some of those early books were not put in the word of God. I see why they're not. It's when you read the Bible and the books that are in the Bible, and then you read the ones that aren't. You can see why that's not there, but you can also still see the value of them. And they are valuable. Yeah, They really are. These are writings that we need to read alongside with the Bible. And so, and that's kind of what I do. I'll do comparisons and I'll, I've done that quite a bit. I'll listen to them on audible. I, I love audible. I'd listen to that all the time, listen to books and things and really trying to, to contemplate what that looks like. But these sayings of the desert fathers is a big deal. And it is a big deal to the second and the third age of the church, because it's during the later part of the second age of the church that this, this group starts. And it's really into the third age of the church that these guys are really established and it will establish what we think of as monasteries now. And that becomes a huge part of the church for, well, for what, how many years now? 1700 years or so. So, I mean, we're talking, 17, 1800 years. We're, we're talking a long time. I mean, that has outlasted most countries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. that monastery way of life has outlasted and, and think about how much theology's come out of that, yeah. that we embrace today, even whether you're Catholic, Protestant, whatever, you're embracing a lot of that theology because back then it was just one church. We didn't, you know, it wasn't Catholic. It wasn't Protestant. It was just the church. Yeah. So this third age of the church is, is through that. So I've got a few notes here. I'll just read and interject with questions and thoughts here, uh, Bob. But um, while we don't have all, I don't have all, we don't have all the exact dates, but we roughly understand that around the time that Athanasius the Great is exiled, we realize that much of that, a lot of that time was with the Desert Fathers. Not all of it. There was other things that went on, but that helped influence him and his theology. And like you said, those times of scape, even Jesus did that. We see that in his ministry, the whole Constantine being baptized and then he dies. That's really when it's, it's, that's kind of that kickoff point. Now we're in the third age of the church. The edict of Milan kind of signifies the moving away from the second age of the church and into the third. And then it, the trigger is when the Roman emperor himself, receives Christ by being baptized and signifies that right before he dies. So, and he shows the importance of being baptized into the faith. So that, that becomes a big deal. That's a huge deal. We'll see something very similar in 1517 and in 1537, 38, when 
the 95 thesis is posted by Martin Luther. That is not the end of the fourth age of the church, but what it is, is that signifies that it's coming. And then the actual end is when King Henry VIII establishes the Anglican church. That's when that is the actual trigger moment. And we'll talk more about that when we get, so we see kind of a similar thing here though. So anyway, um, the church begins to take shape and develop into its formal entity. Um, Another one here, here, and and I've got to throw this out there, Bob, and I'm going to let you just run with this after I say it, because this is huge. This is huge even today and relates to today. A lot of people don't know this, but in 363, there was this e- attempt to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That's right. But what happens in 363? And I don't have the exact date, but during that year, there'll be a, a night and an early morning, a bunch of earthquakes accompanied by a ball of lightning will disrupt an attempt to rebuild the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That was to begin, and that was to begin the next day. Mm, wow. Okay. These forces will destroy much of the material gathered for the work. <laughs> the rebuilding had the backing of the pagan emperor, Julian as one of his lines of opposition to Christianity. See, there was still a lot of turmoil in this early part of the third age of the church. And some of these emperors did not like Christianity. So he was backing Jew- the Jewish faith to try to reestablish that by helping them rebuild their temple. Okay. Guess what? These earthquakes, and this ball of lightning destroys the materials the day before they're going to start the building of it. And then this event will be recounted in numerous contemporary and near contemporary sources, both pagan, uh, pagan Jewish and Christian. So we know this happened. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that this happened. I'm going to just let you run with that because I think that is such a huge sign that it was not time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not going to get ahead of God's timeline on it at all, you know? And I mean, what Jesus say? My time is not yet. Exactly. You know, I mean, it, you know, there is a set time for every season. <laughs> and you know, the yeah, I could just imagine the uh, the trepidation when that happened. When they're like, "Well, let's gather everything back up and go back to it," and they're like, "No, no, no, no." That's what you call an act of God. He's letting his will be known in that instance right there, you know? And, uh, yeah, it, it's like, that is not happening. It, it's kind of like, you know, I'm reminded of the story, the end of the Revolutionary War at Yorktown, you know? I mean, Washington was outnumbered. He was winning, but the British were sending the reinforcements in, and all they had to do was land. They were right there on the ships. And as they're coming in, the, the, this huge gale wind came in reverse course, wouldn't let them out, pushed them back out. And uh, and Washington defeating Cornwallis because he had to surrender because he couldn't get reinforcements. He was done. And that ended the war right there, you know. And, uh, you know, and Washington credited all to God, you know. I mean, trying to escape, uh, I think it was trying to escape from New York. Uh, British had him surrounded. And no boats. They use rowboats. I think they had two rowboats. They had to get everybody across over the course of the night. 
And next morning, fog socked in so they could go ahead and escape. He was in the last boat to escape, you know. And he was only like 30 yards offshore when the British troops finally made it to the shore. And they, he was just disappearing into that fog. So they couldn't even shoot at him. <laughs> I mean, you know, just miracle after miracle because it was God's timing. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, the six, the seven day war, six day war in Israel. You know, I mean, the, the Egyptians and stuff, they're trying to shoot their artillery and, and all this stuff at the Israelis and they couldn't hit it. You know, they, they thought they had point blank aim. And, and as they shoot this round and go off into some Netherland direction, then when their gear was captured, the Israelis turned around. There's point blank accuracy <laughs> going fired against the Egyptians. The angels were out there deflecting all these shells, protecting the Israeli army. You know, and, I mean, it's just you know when, when God says no, it's not happening. There is absolutely happening. zero any human being can do to try and force it to happen. And uh, you know, if, if you try and force it. Usually it doesn't end too well. No, <laughs> I, you know, I can, we can, I can give you another historical one is, is during the civil war, there's really two instances and, and I've got several just during the civil war itself, but two big ones. Number one is that um, the union army had pressed the Confederacy in the Overland campaign but they needed to put Richmond into a trap. Well, <laughs> General Grant takes one of the largest forces up to that time in the history of the world and crosses the James River on pontoon boats and generally miss misses this. <laughs> I mean, he could have killed a lot of those right soldiers here. out in the middle of the river yep. crossing these pontoon bridges, and they have no idea it happened until after it was done. Yeah. Amen. So that's one. Yep. Another is that to give you the understanding of the sin of slavery on this country, Abraham Lincoln is going to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. And it's a way to get the South back into the Union. If they, And basically they have till January 1st, 1863 to get back in. But he can't issue it without a victory. Yep. On September 17th, 1862, exactly 85 years to the day when the U.S. Constitution was signed, which allowed slavery to continue to exist, as well as formulating the three-fifths compromise mm -hmm. and putting that into law at the time, the Battle of Antietam right there in your neck of the woods happened. And it will be the bloodiest, not even day, half a day. In American history, because in less than 12 hours, we will have more casualties than in any other battle in one in a half a day ever in the United States history. Yeah. 26,000 plus. And they said the numbers may actually be higher. Yeah. And it's that battle that pushes the, the Confederate forces back to the South and allows him to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. I find that ironic that the bloodiest day in American history happens on the day of the signing of the Constitution, 85 years later, and it also signifies the Emancipation Proclamation being released by Abraham Lincoln yep. that will eventually lead 
to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Yeah. Hey, folks, Pastor Bob here. We're all about to put time for today's portion of this interview with T.S. Wright as we're discussing the third age of the church. And anytime we can just study history and the Word of God, I'm all in because I love history and I love the Word of God. And you combine the two, man, I, I'm, I just can't, it doesn't get any better than that for Pastor Bob. Amen. So be sure to come back for the very next episode as we conclude this interview. Till then, this Pastor Bob reminding you be blessed in all that you do. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when another episode is published. With over 800 interviews and 1,000 published episodes, Pastor Bob is known as a podcasting expert for helping others to create their own podcast to share their messages with the world. Please visit our website at www.podcastersforchrist.com. That web address again is www.podcastersforchrist.com for more information. Until next time, be blessed in all that you do.